Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at verses 27 to 30. I notice we have a number of new people, visitors this morning, and uh, we have been working through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. And um, the thing about Jesus is he pokes and prods and takes us into all kinds of uncomfortable places, and all we can do is follow along. So for some of you, that'll be this kind of sermon this morning as he tackles the topic of sex and sexual desire with us this morning. We have a problem with sex in our culture. Have you noticed? (laughs) The Me Too movement has highlighted it. Many high-level influential men being accused and brought down from their places of power for allegedly abusing their power, for not respecting the boundaries and wishes of the women around them. It's been weekly news for months now, and of course even church leaders have been implicated along the way. We hear also the stories of the women being pressured and abused and manipulated and violated, often in life-changing and tragically emotionally damaging ways. In today's passage, we see that that's not a new problem, that sex and sexual desire have been potent and powerful always. Our family just a couple weeks ago watched the movie Solo, the new Star Wars movie. So spoiler alert. Uh, Part of the plot of the movie, I won't give away too much, but part of the plot revolves around a quest to get a very potent and precious fuel called coaxium. And in its unrefined state, this fuel is extremely unstable and highly volatile. If not kept in ideal conditions, it quickly overheats to the point where it violently explodes. And so there's a race against time to get it transported and refined before it blows everyone handling or transporting it to kingdom come. And sexual desire is a lot like coaxium. Unstable, potent, powerful. And with the potential to explode and to destroy those in its vicinity if it's not kept under ideal conditions. We've seen it happen. We've heard about it happening right before us in the nightly news. But what about our own lives? Well, Jesus addresses that with us in in today's passage. So as we continue in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, just to remind us, we've seen that Jesus makes the audacious claim that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And then we've seen him begin to illustrate this. He's going to illustrate it a total of six times, and we're in the middle of the six right now, where each time Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, or you've heard that it was said, but then he adds, but I tell you, which is totally audacious, right? (laughs) You've heard that the scriptures tell you that, but I tell you this. I mean, who talks like that? Then each time, Jesus digs into the heart of the matter that those scriptures were getting at, beyond the outward behavior, beyond the most public and obvious examples as we've been looking at murder and divorce and adultery, and down into the heart issues, the inner issues that lurk beneath and behind those outward actions. Jesus digs into our hearts, down into our anger, our resentment, our meanness, into the broken relationships that we experience, especially in marriage, and today into sexual desire. Jesus begins, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And that's one of the Ten Commandments, you may know. 
And, and, and along with murder and theft, it's one of the few of the Ten Commandments which is still generally believed in and supported in the popular culture. Cheating on your spouse is still considered by most, though not all, to be a bad thing. After all, if you are married, you most likely promised on your wedding day to be faithful to your lawfully, led, uh, lawfully wedded spouse to have and to hold till death do you part. And even if you aren't married, even if you are dating, if you're like most people, you do not want your boyfriend or girlfriend to cheat on you. But for sure, to commit adultery, to cheat on your spouse, most people agree is wrong. And not only is it wrong, but it very often destroys lives. I've seen this firsthand, maybe you have too. The the slow motion, cascading effect of destruction that people experience after they cheat on their spouses. First, when it becomes known, there's the shock and the the betrayal and the, the heartache and the conflict. Then often there's the divorce and the families and friends taking sides and kids too often caught in the middle, sometimes too young to understand why mommy's leaving daddy or daddy's mommy, other times old enough to understand and to take sides themselves. And so they are devastated by how one parent could do this to the other. And often along with divorce, there's financial trouble, sometimes financial ruin, many times also depression or the loss of a job or even a career, the loss of reputation and good name. And so before you know it, you see people's whole lives come crumbling down around them, all because of sexual desire and other related motives that they did not rein in, did not control, but acted on instead. Now listen to what Jesus says next. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To look at a woman lustfully, what does that mean? Well, what we need to realize is this word lust or lustfully comes straight out of the tenth of the Ten Commandments. The, The Greek word being translated lustfully here is the same word used in the last of the Ten Commandments in the Greek version of the Old Testament when it says, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife or donkey or whatever. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not lust for your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife. To look at a woman lustfully basically means that you look at her and you want her sexually. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about seeing a woman and thinking, wow, she's pretty, she's attractive. Though married guys, we know that our wives don't want us doing that either. Jesus is also not talking about seeing an attractive woman and feeling those initial feelings of sexual attraction for her, which might be a relief to some men who feel guilty when that happens. What Jesus is talking about here is more than seeing and feeling that initial feeling of sexual desire. He's talking about looking at a woman and wanting her, wishing you could have her, daydreaming in your imagination about what it would be like to be with her. Now, men, be careful because we know that it's an easy step from seeing and feeling desire 
to wishing and imagining you could act on that desire, right? <laughs> Let me give you an example of what Jesus does mean when, when he talks about looking lustfully. I was hanging out with a group of guys once. They were married guys. And this is what they were discussing. What if you were given a one-time hall pass? That's what they called it, a hall pass. By the way, you don't know any of these people. Even my wife doesn't know them. So. <laughs> um, but what, what these married men meant was, let's pretend for one night neither God nor your wife would mind if you slept with another woman. And the question they were discussing was, who would you sleep with? And this is the kind of thinking, the kind of looking, the kind of lusting that Jesus is talking about here. If you want her, just because you can't have her or you don't find a way, you're not off the hook. You're not innocent. If you find yourself wishing you could have her, thinking about it, then you've already done the act as far as Jesus is concerned. Now, it's also worth noting that Jesus uses the verb look here, right? Men are very visual, and most women know that. In, in just a minute, I'll, we should talk about why Jesus is addressing the men here and not the women, and we'll do that. But first, notice Jesus' observation that it's often looking that leads to lust. Very often, it starts with a look. A look which at first maybe doesn't mean to be lustful, but then once we've looked, we have a choice, don't we? We can keep looking. We can start imagining. We can head down the road to, I wonder what it would be like if. Or we can move on and we can look at and imagine something else, like the shop windows or the beach umbrellas or whatever can distract and captivate our attention. Now, let's pause and address the question, why does Jesus pick on the guys here? I think it's for at least two reasons. First, men are very visual, and they're often, not always, but often, they're initiators, and too often, they're aggressors. Second, Jesus is holding men responsible. Have you noticed in the Me Too conversation when women have spoken up and they've said, come on, ladies, we've got to dress modestly. We've got to dress with class, and we'll avoid attracting the wrong kind of attention. What's happened to those women in the, the cultural debate? They've been criticized, right? Why? Well, for a few reasons, but one is that they can sound like they're giving men an excuse. That they're putting the blame actually on women for causing their own victimization. And I don't mean to get us into that debate this morning, because right now I think it's generating more heat than light. And there's a lot that needs to be heard on all sides you might know that in Jesus' culture, married women were expected to cover their hair so as not to attract unwanted attention from men. And Jesus never speaks to this practice, as far as we know. He doesn't tell women what they should do one way or another. Though there are places in the New Testament where, where it does address how women should dress. And I encourage the women in this church to discuss with the young woman when and how it's appropriate to attract male attention through how you dress, how you act, how you carry yourself. This is very important. But that side of things isn't what Jesus is going after in this passage. What he's going after is not those who attract attention, but those who find themselves being attracted. And in this case, Jesus places the responsibility squarely on the shoulders of the men. 
He says, come on, guys, it's time to man up. Take control of yourselves. I'm holding you responsible for how you look at women. Don't treat them like objects. Jesus is addressing the space in a man's brain process between when we look at an attractive woman and when we want her sexually. That process goes from a look to an interest or an attraction to imagination and daydreams to wishing something could happen. Now, we can't go any further into this without dealing with the issue of pornography. Because when Jesus talks about looking at a woman with the purpose or the result of desiring her, that's what porn is all about, right? And I'm fully aware that in a church, well, that in our church, if it's like the average church in America today, that over half of the men are looking at porn. And it's approaching one quarter for the women, too. So if you are, you're not alone. And Jesus is speaking to you here. He's speaking about looking. He's also speaking about what goes on in your mind and in your heart and what you are wanting as a result of looking. And for many women, if looking doesn't relate to you, let me ask, what kind of novels are you reading? Where do they lead your imaginations and cause your daydreams to go? All of this is a big issue today. It's very relevant for our culture, right? Because sexual attraction is like a fire, a fire in a very dry forest on a windy day. That's the culture, the context we're we're living in. And so for each of us, once there's a spark of desire in us, if we don't put it out quickly it very easily flames up and gets hard to control. And yet we can control it. Maybe sometimes it's hard to want to. But if we choose to, with God's help, we can. How? Well, to some extent, by distracting ourselves, by choosing to look at something else, to think about something else until the flame subsides. Distracting yourself is much better than just trying not to. You know, I won't think about pink elephants. I won't think about pink elephants. Right? What are you all thinking about? <laughs> we have to distract ourselves with something positive. And there's more to it than that, as, as we'll get into later um, when we get to application. But for now, let, let's hear again and let's summarize what Jesus has to say about this. It's very straightforward. He says, adultery isn't just the act It's also looking at someone and wishing you could commit the act, imagining it, fantasizing about it, even if you never do it. That's that's adultery too, Jesus says. Okay, one last question here. Is Jesus only talking to those who are married? If... Uh, Or what if a a man looks at a woman with desire or a woman desires a man and he's not married and she's not married? Then even if they act on it, it's not adultery, right? They're both single. They're both unattached. Well, Jesus isn't clear here in this particular passage. But I can tell you what the Bible says from beginning to end. And that is that sex is a wonderful thing. God created it to be enjoyed, to be celebrated in the context of a committed marriage relationship. Intimacy is God's gift. It's created to thrive and to grow in the context of commitment, of safety, 
of security, of faithfulness. Never outside of it. Now, some people will say, yeah, but that was another day, that was another culture that the Bible was addressing. But here's what people who say that uh, must not realize. That the New Testament times were anything but Victorian. When the New Testament was written, first century society was as sex-crazed as we are today, if not more so. And still, the New Testament was clear that sex is meant to be enjoyed by those who are married only. That's countercultural. <laughs> that's weird. That's different. But we already knew that about Jesus, didn't we? The, the kingdom he's come to bring is very different. It, it's very much swimming upstream compared to how everyone else is doing it. Now, why the Bible says what it says about sex outside of marriage and what the rationale is, is, of course, a whole other sermon. And it's not what Jesus is elaborating on here. So I'm not going to elaborate further on it either, other than to recognize that based on what the Bible says everywhere else, we can apply the principles that Jesus gives us here to those who aren't married as well. So with that, let's get to the next question, which is, how big of a deal is all of this anyway? After all, as we've been reminding ourselves, sexual desire is very much all around us these days. We've been desensitized to it through the images, the news reports, the marketing, the culture's belief about what's important and what's appropriate. Everyone's doing it. So how big of a deal is it if we do it too? Well, Jesus weighs in. Look what he has to say in verses 29 and 30. He says, If your eye causes you to stumble, to falter, to be tempted, to get into trouble then gouge it out. Better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to wind up in hell. And then, as if that isn't enough to make us squirm, just to make sure we get the point, Jesus repeats the whole thing again, this time with our hand. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, this is the first time in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the first time in Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus has come straight out and mentioned hell. He hinted at it when he addressed murder, if you remember. But now he speaks it straight up. And the word translated hell here is Gehenna. It's a, a valley outside of Jerusalem. And by the time of Jesus, it had become Jerusalem's garbage dump. The way it happened was that hundreds of years before, child sacrifices had taken place in that valley as act of religious worship to other gods. And in an effort to discourage them from continuing, one of Judah's kings, who was a reformer, I think it might have been Josiah, had ritually defiled the, that place, had desecrated it by burning corpses there so that it would no longer be fit in the eyes of even the pagan people as a site for any kind of religious worship. And so it became a garbage dump instead. And it came to be known in the Jewish imagination as the place, or maybe as a metaphor for the place, that you ultimately wound up if you didn't end up with God in paradise. The bad place. Thrown on the garbage heap of history and of humanity. Worthless, Useless, defiled, damned. Better to lose an eye, a hand now, 
than to wind up there in the end, Jesus says. Now, Jesus isn't saying if you mess up sexually, you're automatically going to hell. And if you don't, then your eternity is safe. He's not drawing that tight of a connection in this passage here. But he is asking you to take seriously where your actions and your thoughts and your desires are taking your life, whether toward God or away from God and what God wants for you. Now, there's been the occasional follower of Jesus who has taken Jesus literally here when Jesus says, better to gouge out an eye or to cut off a hand. For example, there was the the famous rumor that Origen in the third century castrated himself as a way of dealing with his sexual struggles. But most think that Jesus is speaking figuratively here, or at least they hope so, (laughs) to make a point. And, And I agree, but here's the problem I recognize when we take things figuratively. And that is that we tend to find it easier to not take them seriously. And Jesus is deadly serious here. He's saying, deal with your sexual desire. Take drastic action. Don't play with it. You shouldn't play with it any more than you play with coaxium. As if it's not a big deal. So you struggle with internet porn. Have you gotten rid of your computer yet? Your cable subscription? Your iPhone? Better to destroy one of your devices than for your whole body to be thrown into the garbage in the end. Jesus is serious because he's trying to save us. He's urging us to do whatever it takes. And yes, with pornography, for example, there there are spiritual issues and often deeper emotional and psychological roots to this that we should address, especially if it's become an addiction as it very often does. But what about some obvious practical steps to get you started? What's causing you to stumble? Why not deal drastically with it? Or is that tangible thing that's leading you into trouble more important to you than than where your heart is is leading you and where your life and your destiny are going to end up in the end? Because Jesus says how you're handling this part of your life is leading you somewhere. Is that where you want to go? And if not, are you willing to make sure you don't wind up there? And that you head somewhere better instead? Remember what we saw back in September when we we began looking at the Sermon on the Mount, when we looked at the Beatitudes? We saw that they were wisdom sayings. That the Sermon on the Mount um, began with wisdom, and it's full of wisdom-type material and sayings all the way through. And verses 29 to 30 are an example of that. It's not so much that Jesus is trying to get us to be super spiritual here, the way he's motivating us. He's just trying to get us to wake up and be wise. Because it's nice to tell ourselves that our actions don't have consequences, that the rules don't apply to us, that that we can have our cake and eat it too, that, that other people might reap the consequences of their actions, but we won't. It will all work out okay for us. And Jesus says, think again. Your life is heading you somewhere. And sooner or later, you will wind up where you're headed. Are you sure that's where you want to end up? Well, if not, why aren't you doing what it takes to make sure you don't? Are are you stupid? (laughs) Don't be foolish, in effect, is what Jesus is saying here. Don't 
hold on to one little thing, an eye, a hand, an iPhone, a computer, a cable package, and lose your whole self in the end. That's just dumb. Deal drastically with whatever you need to deal with to sort this out. Let me close with a a true story, which was reported by the Associated Press back in 2003. On Saturday, April 26th of that year, Aaron Ralston set out climbing in Canyonlands National Park in Utah. And it was to be a one-day excursion. But as he used rock climbing gear to, to negotiate narrow canyons, the unthinkable happened to him. Ralston pushed his arm into a crack in the canyon wall and an 800-pound boulder shifted, pinning his arm. He, he tried using a dull pocket knife to chip away at the boulder, but it was, didn't work. He tried to rig a makeshift pulley with ropes to lift the boulder, and that failed as well. After three days stuck there in the canyon all alone with no one else coming, or aware that he was there. He had gone through most of his three liters of water and food. And he made a very hard decision. He decided to sacrifice his arm to save his life. First bending his body in order to break his wrist bone, he then proceeded to use his knife to amputate his arm below his right elbow. Amazingly, he was able to remain conscious. And the 27-year-old climber applied a makeshift tourniquet and then rappelled 60 feet down to the the canyon floor and walked to safety. I'm not sure how I handled it, he said later, this mechanical engineer turned adventurer, the stump of his right arm still in a sling as he talked to reporters. I, I felt pain and I coped with it. I moved on. According to the sheriff's department, Sergeant Mitch... Viteri, Ralston would have died if he'd stayed in that canyon. He had a will to live. And and this is the hard wisdom that Jesus is urging us to take to heart here. If sexual desire is an issue for you, what are you doing about it? How seriously are you taking it? Are you seeking out the help that you might need? I'll tell you what I've done over the years since my 20s. I've been part of an accountability group. I've had an accountability partner. I've, um, well, and mainly because um, not being alone in the struggle and uh, confessing to those you trust and having their support are key. I've also changed Google image search settings. Um, I'm avo- I've avoided certain movies and TV shows. I've tried to get in the habit of not taking that second look or indulging in that second thought. Um, and of having a strategy of something positive to distract myself with instead if I was in a phase of life where this was a struggle. When Ann and I were dating, we tried not to be alone together late at night. What, was any of this a, as big of a sacrifice as cutting off my arm or gouging out my eye? No, it was a small price to play or to pay to stay on the path that I wanted to be on. Have I always done it perfectly? No, I haven't. Have I always been as serious, as vigilant about it as Jesus here says we should be? No. And for that, I'm grateful for God's grace. You see, Jesus wants us to succeed here. 
He wants to forgive us. He wants to draw us close. He wants to help us to get free and to be free. And that's why he's warning us as strongly as he is here to wake us up. He he wants us to reach out to him for forgiveness and for help to turn our lives back to God in this area so we can be headed on a good path, the path of the kingdom of God that the Sermon on the Mount is leading us on. Let's pray. Jesus, these words are so countercultural in our culture. We realize that. And there's a part of our nature which they feel counter to as well. But we've felt that in each passage we've looked at in the Sermon on the Mount. We know that we need you to give us a new heart. And Jesus, we thank you that you not only want to save us from the consequences of our sins, you want to save us from the sins themselves so that we can turn away from them and move on a different path. Thank you that you're such a great Savior. I pray um, for those of us who struggle, I know for some of us, we have felt defeated and we have given up. Um, And I pray that you would light a fresh intention, a fresh fire in our hearts to deal drastically, to get the help we need, to confess and come clean where we need to come clean, and with your help, to walk in a new direction. Thank you that you want to help us do that. Amen.